Welcome back to Reading Through the New Testament. Thank you for joining us uh, today. This is Pastor Spencer. I'm so glad that you're taking the time to listen to this podcast and uh, grasp some more of what you're going to read or are reading um, in the New Testament right now. This week is week 18 uh, for the week of May 1st, Sunday, May 1st through May 7th. We're going to read this week John 18, 19, 20, 21 and begin Acts chapter 1 this week. So we're finishing the Gospel of John, starting uh, with one chapter in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, written by Luke. And for this week, um, as we've done in the past for some of the transition uh, weeks where we're wrapping up a book and we're going to begin a new book, um, this week we're going to just focus on John, um, and I'll let you read the first chapter of Acts this week, and then next week we will give some background information to the book of Acts, kind of uh, you know talk about it, introduce it, and uh, begin uh, walking through that book. But uh, here we'll just kind of focus on the last parts here of John's gospel um, in the last four chapters of, of the gospel of John. So John has been here, uh, right? We talked about the book of signs, uh, chapters 1 through 12, and then thirteen chapters 13 through 20 is what some people might call the book of exaltation, where Jesus is being lifted up, and that means in his cross and resurrection, Jesus is being lifted up for all the world to see so that all who believe in him might know him and have life in his name. And so that's what we're studying. Um, and then chapter 21 is kind of an epilogue, a unique uh, conclusion to John's gospel um, that we'll, we'll kind of touch on uh, this time as well. So an outline of John 18 through 21, just so you're aware, 18 and 19, uh, chapters 18 and 19, as you read that, that's Jesus's betrayal, um, his arrest, his trial, particularly we see some interesting things with his trial before Pilate. Um, in John's gospel, we get a little bit more um, insight into um, the discussions between Jesus and uh, Pilate. Um, and then we have his crucifixion as well. He dies and, and uh, dies for our sins and is crucified. But then in chapter 20, as in all of the other gospels, he is raised from the dead. He is raised and there are some unique stories, uh, some stories that are peculiar only to uh, John's uh, account of the resurrection, right, where um, we're told some uh, some stories about the, even, even the nuances about Peter and uh, John at the tomb or Mary Magdalene or um, whenever he uh, appears to Thomas the next week afterwards. All those are kind of unique to John, kind of giving us some unique insights that kind of help harmonize with the other Gospels, the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to teach us about what the resurrection um, is, what happened, and why it's important uh, for us. And then lastly, in John chapter 21, we see um, an epilogue there where Jesus appears again. He restores Peter, because remember, Peter betrayed his Lord and denied that he knew him. And Jesus will restore Peter, but also describes the two different roles that we're going to see with John and uh, Peter. 
uh, the disciple that Jesus loves, whom we believe is John, and uh, the apostle Peter. And so that kind of is found in, in, in John chapter 21 there at the end. So that's kind of where we're going to go. And then Acts chapter 1, of course, is the beginning of of Acts, it's the remember as well. Acts is part of a two-volume work, right? Luke, the Gospel of Luke is kind of like volume one, and then Acts is like volume two of a two-part work. And really, um, just so to give you a hint of where we're going to go, probably is that um, Luke describes Jesus's ministry on Earth as he's on Earth, um, but Acts describes Jesus's ministry. Uh, from heaven, but still his ministry takes place through the person of the Spirit now uh, as he's reigning in heaven. So Jesus is active in both volumes, volume one and two of Luke's account. It's just that in the first one, Jesus is here walking on this earth. uh, And in the second volume in Acts, he is ruling and reigning from heaven and working through the promised Holy Spirit to accomplish his tasks. So that's kind of uh, a quick overview of what's happening. Now let's dive in um, to see what's going on here. Remember John 18, we have the betrayal. Jesus has just prayed. We read those chapters, like chapters 13 through 17. Those are very key chapters where Jesus is pouring his life and his heart into these disciples um, right before um, he is about ready to be arrested and betrayed and crucified. Um, so Jesus is telling them about their relationship to him. He says that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, and he prays also that they would be one um, in him and, and with each other. And so Jesus is, is also telling them about the coming of the Spirit, who is going to come, another helper, another strengthener, who's going to be with them. And he is uh, washes their feet, and he prays for them. In uh, John 17, he prays to the Father for his uh, disciples. So all of those things are going on. And right after that, um, we read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 18, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And so on. You can read there. So that's where we're at today. Jesus is stepping forward um, and is arrested. And that's the first part I want to talk to you about today. And this is everything today is going to be taken from J.C. Ryle uh, this week. And we'll have to say goodbye to J.C. Ryle because he didn't have commentaries on the other books of the Bible. So I hope you've enjoyed it, by the way. Um, you can, if you're interested, you can see these online or you could purchase these volumes, these expository thoughts on the Gospels by J.C. Ryle. Um, I, I'm a big, big fan of them. Um, and so, um, anyway, yeah, that's what, this is, we're going to all do it from, from J.C. Ryle today, and this will be the last we will hear from him uh, uh, during this reading through the New Testament time. So, uh, John 18, 1 through 11, we're going to talk about the betrayal and arrest, and this is J.C. Ryle's thoughts uh, for us upon these passages. He says this, 
These verses begin John's account of Christ's sufferings and crucifixion. We, shall n- we now enter on the closing scene of our Lord's ministry and pass at once from his intercession to his sacrifice. Remember his intercession, right? Um, was in John 17 and now his sacrifice now. We shall find that like the other gospel writers, the beloved disciple enters fully into the story of the cross. But we shall also find, if we read carefully, that he mentions several interesting points in the story, which Matthew, Mark, and Luke, for some wise reasons, have passed over. We should notice first, in these verses, the exceeding hardness of heart to which a backsliding professor may attain. We are told that Judas, one of the twelve apostles, became guide to those who captured Jesus. We are told that he used his knowledge of the place of our Lord's retirement in order to bring his deadly enemies upon him. And we are told that when the band of men and officers approached his master in order to take him prisoner, Judas stood with them. Yet, this was a man who for three years had been a constant companion of Christ, had seen his miracles, had heard his sermons, had enjoyed the benefit of his private instruction, had professed himself a believer, had even worked and preached in Christ's name. Lord, we may well say, what is man? From the highest degree of privilege down to the lowest depth of sin, there is but a succession of steps. Privileges misused seem to paralyze the conscience. The same fire that melts wax will harden clay. Let us beware of resting our hopes of salvation on religious knowledge, however great, or religious advantages, however many. We may know all doctrinal truth and be able to teach others and yet prove rotten at heart and go down to the pit with Judas. We may bask in the full sunshine of spiritual privileges and hear the best of Christian teaching and yet bear no fruit to God's glory and be found withered branches of the vine, only fit to be burned. Let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10.12 Above all, let us beware of cherishing within our hearts any secret besetting sin, such as love of money or love of the world. One faulty link in a chain cable may cause a shipwreck. One little leak may sink a ship. One allowed and unmortified sin may ruin a professing Christian. Let him that is tempted to be careless, to be a careless man in his religious life, consider these things and take care. Let him remember Judas Iscariot. His history is meant to be a lesson. As we stop there real quick, that is a very good reminder, isn't it? Um, You know, uh, we read about this elsewhere in the New Testament, and uh, I I guess the Old Testament probably perhaps as well. Um, I mean, you think about the very first apostasy that took place after the fall was of Cain killing his brother Abel. They were both, in a sense, they were part of a worshiping community. Uh, Remember, uh, Abel brings the sheep and Cain brings the fruit of the ground. And uh, Cain kills his brother. And even though externally, um, Cain probably professed true faith. And similarly here, Judas professes true faith, saving faith. And yet at the last, He is driven from God because of his own sin and rejection of God's promise in Christ. And here's Judas, who has spent three years with Jesus, and he's for all purposes, I mean, he was an apostle. He was one of those who preached and taught and did miracles, who uh, lived with Jesus, heard Jesus, uh, talked with Jesus, spent lots of time with Christ one-on-one, and yet he fell. 
So just a good reminder to all of us um, that this is this is a reality that we need to be wary of, and we need to. It calls for us to daily turn away from ourselves to kill sin, even the littlest sin, the littlest, smallest thing that we think we can hold on to. We must. It must all go. And we must repent daily, hourly, minute by minute, turning away from ourselves and reorienting ourselves back to the truth of God as it is in Jesus Christ. Okay, Ryle continues. We should notice secondly in these verses, this is the arrest and betrayal of Jesus again, the entire voluntariness of Christ's sufferings. We are told that the first time that our Lord said to the soldiers, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. A secret invisible power, no doubt, accompanied the words. In no other way can we account for a band of hardy Roman soldiers falling prostrate before a single unarmed man. The same miraculous influence which tied the priests and Pharisees powerless at the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, which stopped all opposition when the temple was purged of buyers and sellers, that same mysterious influence was present now. A real miracle was wrought, though few had eyes to see it. At the moment when our Lord seemed weak, he showed that he was strong. Let us remember, let us carefully remember, that our blessed Lord suffered and died of his own free will. He did not die because he could not help it. He did not suffer because he could not escape. All the soldiers of Pilate's army could not have taken him if he had not been willing to be taken. They could not have hurt a hair of his head if he had not given them permission. But here... As in all his earthly ministry, Jesus was a willing sufferer. He had set his heart on accomplishing our redemption. He loved us and gave himself for us, cheerfully, willingly, gladly, in order to make atonement for our sins. It was the joy set before him which made him endure the cross and despise the shame and yield himself up without reluctance into the bands of his enemies. Let this thought abide in our hearts and refresh our souls. We have a Savior who was far more willing to save us than we are willing to be saved. If we are not saved, the fault is all our own. Christ is just as willing to receive and pardon as he was willing to be taken prisoner, to bleed, and to die. We, notice, we should notice thirdly in these verses our Lord's tender care for his disciples' safety. Even at this critical moment, when his own unspeakable sufferings were about to begin, he did not forget the little band of believers who stood around him. He remembered their weakness. He knew how little fit they were to go into the fiery furnace of the high priest's palace and Pilate's judgment hole. He mercifully makes for them a way of escape. If you seek me, let these go their way. It seems most probable that there that here also a touch of miraculous influence accompanied his words. At any rate, not a hair of the disciples' heads was touched. While the shepherd was taken, the sheep were allowed to flee away unharmed. We need not hesitate to see in this incident an instructive type of all our Lord's of all our Savior's dealings with his people, even at this day. He will not allow them to be tempted above what they are able to bear. He will hold the winds and storms in his hands and not allow believers, however sifted and buffeted, to be utterly destroyed. He watches tenderly over every one of his children and, like a wise physician, measures out the right quantity of their trials with unerring skill. They shall never perish, neither shall anyone pluck them out of his hand. Forever let us lean our souls on this precious truth 
In the darkest hour, the eye of the Lord Jesus is upon us, and our final safety is sure. So that's really good stuff, isn't it? Again, reminding us of Jesus' love for other people and for us, even while he himself is voluntarily giving his life for our sakes. I love what Ryle points out there that that he is more willing that we are saved than, than that we are. I've, I've said it before. I had a phrase that I, I kind of coined uh, similarly, but um, God is more interested in our salvation than we are. And that is so true. You see that from the beginning to the end of the Bible story, um, that he is that way. Okay, so as we move on now from the betrayal and the arrest here, we see Jesus doing this. This is all happening. Eventually, Jesus goes before the uh, high priest and then eventually to Pilate, um, where Jesus has some interactions with Pilate there at the tail end of chapter 18. But then at the very beginning of chapter 19, we see Jesus still with Pilate. Um, Pilate is sending Jesus to get flogged and berated before uh, the soldiers and the crowd. And eventually we see the crowd there calling for him to be crucified. And we see Jesus um, handed over to them. And we see Pilate here not knowing what to do exactly, but eventually caving in and handing him over. So this is what we have here in John 19, 1 through 16. This is what J.C. Ryle has to say here. This is, um, these are various portraits he gives us of Jesus, the unbelieving Jews, and Pilate. So this is good stuff again. These verses exhibit to our eyes a wonderful picture, a picture which ought to be deeply interesting to all who profess and call themselves Christians. Like every great historical picture, it contains special points on which we should fix our special attention. Above all, it contains three lifelike portraits, which we shall find it useful to examine in order. The first portrait in the picture is that of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. We see the Savior of mankind scourged, crowned with thorns, mocked, smitten, rejected by his own people, unjustly condemned by a judge who saw no fault in him, and finally delivered up to a most painful death. Yet this was he who was the eternal Son of God, whom the Father's countless angels delighted to honor. This was he who came into the world to save sinners, and after living a blameless life for thirty years, spent the last three years of his time on earth in going about doing good and preaching the gospel. Surely the sun never shone on a more wondrous sight since the day of its creation. Let us admire that love of Christ which Paul declares passes knowledge, and let us see an endless depth of meaning in the expression. There is no earthly love with which it can be compared, and no standard by which to measure it. It is a love that stands alone. Never let us forget when we ponder this tale of suffering that Jesus suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust that he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, and that with his stripes we are healed. Let us diligently follow the example of his patience in all the trials and afflictions of life, and especially in those which may be brought upon us by religion. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Let us arm ourselves with the same mind, Let us consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners without a murmur and strive to glorify him by suffering well, no less than by doing well. 
So that's the portrait we have of Christ right away. He was a savior who, um, you know, who, who came voluntarily. And here we see his, his great love of willing, willingness to suffer for the sake of us and to do the father's will. And, and so we see his love, but also as Ryle points out his example the example that, that I think Peter uh, brings out, that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And his people are to look to Jesus as to how we are to respond when we are persecuted for the name of Christ. The second portrait in the picture before us is that of the unbelieving Jews who favored our Lord's death. We see them for three or four long hours obstinately rejecting Pilate's offer to release our Lord fiercely demanding his his crucifixion, savagely claiming his condemnation to death as a right, persistently refusing to acknowledge him as their king, declaring that they had no king but Caesar, and finally accumulating on their own heads the greater part of the guilt of his murder. Yet these were the children of Israel and the seed of Abraham, to whom pertained the promises and the Mosaic ceremonial, the temple sacrifices and the temple priesthood, These were men who professed to look for a prophet like unto Moses, and a son of David who was to set up a kingdom as Messiah. Never surely was there such an exhibition of the depth of human wickedness since the day when Adam fell. Let us mark with fear and trembling the enormous danger of long-continued rejection of light and knowledge. There is such a thing as judicial blindness. And it is the last and sorest judgment which God can send upon men. He who, like Pharaoh and Ahab, is often reproved but refuses to receive reproof, will finally have a heart harder than the nether millstone, and a conscience past feeling, and seared as with a hot iron. This was the state of the Jewish nation during the time of our Lord's ministry, and the heading up of their sin was their deliberate rejection of him, when Pilate desired to let him go. From such judicial blindness, may we all pray to be delivered. There is no worse judgment from God than to be left to ourselves and given over to our own wicked hearts and the devil. There is no surer way to bring that judgment upon us than to persist in refusing warnings and sinning against light. These words of Solomon are very dreadful. But since you rejected me when I called and no one gave heed when I stretched out my hand, since you ignored all my advice and would not accept my rebuke, I in turn will laugh at your disaster. I will mock when calamity overtakes you. Proverbs 1, 24-26 Never let it be forgotten then. Never let it be forgotten that, like the Jews, we may at length be given up to strong delusion so that we believe lives. And, may, and think that we are doing God's service while we are committing sin. 2 Thessalonians 2.11 The last portrait he gives is of uh, Pilate. Um, and here we see a man who is, uh, I'm not going to read this today, but uh, of a man who, who realizes that this man, that Jesus has done nothing wrong, and yet he, he caves in and... Uh, and it allows himself to be swayed by the crowd because of his fear of the crowd, and yet allows Jesus uh, to be condemned. So here we've got these people, we've got Jesus, we've got the unbelieving Jews who are demanding his his uh, death, and we have Pilate here kind of in the middle uh, between them, and, uh, and Pilate eventually decides, yeah, go ahead and hand Jesus over um, to uh, 
these people to be crucified because he doesn't want any more um, any more fuss, so to speak, made about it than 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 he thinks is necessary. Okay, so then Jesus is handed over to be crucified. He's led away, and then we read about his crucifixion and the death of Christ. Um, We read about him taking care of his mother and then the death of Christ in John 19, verses 28 through uh, 37. Jesus is put on the cross and uh, beginning in uh, verse 28 says this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And then eventually he uh, says at the very end, it is finished. So. Here's J.C. Ryle on on these parts about the Christ's uh, death and crucifixion. This part of John's narrative of Christ's passion contains points of deep interest, which are silently passed over by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The reason of this silence we are not told. Suffice it for us to remember that, both in what they recorded and in what they did not record, all four evangelists wrote by inspiration of God. Let us mark for one thing in these verses, the frequent fulfillments of of prophetic scripture throughout every part of Christ's crucifixion. Three different predictions are specially mentioned in Exodus, Psalms, and Zechariah, which receive their accomplishment at the cross. Others, as every well-informed Bible reader knows, might easily be added. All combined to prove one and the same thing. They prove that the death of our Lord Jesus Christ at Golgotha was a thing foreseen and predetermined by God. Hundreds of years before the crucifixion, every part of the solemn transaction was arranged in the divine councils, and the minutest particulars were revealed to the prophets. From first to last, it was a thing foreknown, and every portion of it was in accordance with a settled plan and design. In the highest, fullest sense, when Christ died, he died according to the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. We need not hesitate to regard such fulfillments of prophecy as strong evidence of the divine authority of God's word. The prophets foretell not only Christ's death, but the particulars of his death. It is impossible to explain so many accomplishments of predicted uh, circumstances upon any other theory. To talk of luck, chance, and accidental coincidence as sufficient explanation is preposterous and absurd. The only rational account is is the inspiration of God. The prophets who foretold the particulars of the crucifixion were inspired by him who foresees the end from the beginning. And the books they wrote under his inspiration ought not to be read as human compositions, but divine Great indeed are the difficulties of all who pretend to deny the inspiration of the Bible. It really requires more unreasoning faith to be an infidel than to be a Christian. The man who regards the repeated fulfillments of minute prophecies about Christ's death, such as the prophecies about his dress, his thirst, his pierced side, and his bones, as the result of chance and not of design, must indeed be a credulous man." We should mark secondly in these verses the peculiarly solemn saying which came from our Lord's lips just before he died. John relates that when he had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. It is surely not too much to say that of all the seven famous sayings of Christ on the cross, none is more remarkable than this which John alone has recorded. 
The precise meaning of this wonderful expression, it is finished, is a point which the Holy Spirit has not thought good to reveal to us. There is a depth about it, we must all instinctively feel, which man has probably no line to fathom. Yet there is perhaps no irreverence in conjecturing the thoughts that were in our Lord's mind when the word was spoken. The finishing of all the known and unknown sufferings which he came to endure as our substitute, the finishing of the ceremonial law which he came to wind up and fulfill as the true sacrifice for sin, the finishing of the many prophecies which he came to, f- to accomplish, the finishing of the great work of man's redemption which was now at close at hand. All this we need not doubt our Lord had in view when he said, It is finished. There may have been more behind for anything we know, but in handling the language of such a being as our Savior, on such an occasion and at so mysterious a crisis of his history, it is well to be cautious. The place whereon we stand is holy ground. One comfortable thought at all events stands out most clearly on the face of this famous expression. We rest our souls on a finished work. If we rest them on the work of our, of Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ the Lord. We need not fear that either sin or Satan or law shall condemn us at the last day. We may lean back on the thought that we have a Savior who has done all, paid all, accomplished all, performed all that is necessary for our salvation. We may take up the charge of the Apostle. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ who died. Yes, rather that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God? who also makes intercession for us, Romans 8.34. When we look at our own works, we may well be ashamed of their imperfections. But when we look at the finished work of Christ, we may feel peace. We are complete in Him if we believe. Colossians 2.10 Well, that, that's some great stuff, right? Again, reminding us that when Jesus died and when He says it is finished, um, I think I read elsewhere Spurgeon and one of his commentaries says that this phrase, the more you look at it or if you lift it up, it, it grows. It grows, doesn't it? There's so much that's packed into those those uh, three words. It is finished. That, um, well, what was finished? Well, everything, right? Everything was finished. Everything he came to do, um, it really summarizes uh, for us beautifully Um his completion, the completion of his work and who Jesus is to us. Um, it, it is impossible now to think of any aspect of life apart from him because he is the second Adam, the son of God. He is our Lord and our King. Okay, so Jesus dies and we read about him uh, being buried. We read about um, uh, the the women that go to the tomb on, in John chapter 20, we read about them uh, coming and running into Jesus, uh, or Mary Magdalene meeting Jesus, I should say. Um, Peter and John going to the tomb. Jesus appears to the disciples. But then, of course, we're told that Thomas was not there when the disciples um, had, been, had seen Jesus the first time. So Jesus shows up the next week, the next first day of the week. So he appeared on the first day of the week to them, and then a week later he shows up on the first day of the week. And so this is uh, this wonderful section here from uh, John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. 
Um, But here where we read, uh, beginning in verse 24, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Here's uh, J.C. Ryle on Jesus' interaction with Thomas here. The story of the unbelief of Thomas related in these verses is a narrative peculiar to the Gospel of John. For wise and good reasons, it is passed over in silence by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and was probably not given to the world until Thomas was dead. It is precisely one of those passages of Scripture which supply strong internal evidence of the honesty of the inspired writers. If impostors and deceivers had compiled the Bible for their own private advantage, they would never have told mankind that one of the first founders of a new religion behaved as Thomas here did. We should mark for one thing in these verses how much Christians may lose by not regularly attending the assemblies of God's people. Thomas was absent the first time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after his resurrection, and consequently Thomas missed a blessing. Of course, we have no certain proof that the absence of the apostle could not admit of explanation. Yet, at such a crisis in the lives of the eleven, it seems highly improbable that he had any good reason for not being with his brethren, and it is far more likely that in some way he was to blame. One thing at any rate is clear and plain. By being absent, he was kept in suspense and unbelief a whole week, while all around him were rejoicing in the thought of a risen Lord. It is difficult to suppose that this would have been the case if there had not been a fault somewhere. It is hard to avoid the suspicion that Thomas was absent when he might have been present. We shall all do well to remember the charge of the Apostle Paul. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, Hebrews 10.25. Never to be absent from God's house on Sundays without good reason never to miss the Lord's Supper when administered in our own congregation, never to let our place be empty when means of grace are going on. This is one way to be a growing and prosperous Christian. The very sermon that we needlessly miss may contain a precious word and season for our souls. The very assembly for prayer and praise from which we stay away may be the very gathering that would have cheered and established and quickened our hearts. We little know how dependent our spiritual health is on little, regular, habitual helps, and how much we suffer if we miss our medicine. The wretched argument that many attend means of grace and are no better for them should be no argument to a Christian. It may satisfy those who are blind to their own state and destitute of grace, but it should never satisfy a real servant of Christ. Such an one should remember the words of Solomon. Blessed is the man who that hears me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the doors of my at the posts of my doors. Proverbs eight thirty four. Above all, he should bind around his heart the master's promise. Wheresoever two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Matthew eighteen twenty. Such a man will rarely be left like Thomas, shut out in the cold chill of unbelief, while others are warmed and filled. Right away, that's a great reminder, isn't it, to us, the blessing that comes when we are engaged in corporate worship uh, with our brothers and sisters, particularly on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. 
that whenever we are absent from that, that is actually, we're depriving ourselves of a blessing, of the joy, of the great things that God gives to us in those regular, ordinary, habitual things, like coming to church, singing his praise, hearing his word, praying together with our brothers and sisters. Those things are things that we maybe take for granted, or we think, I can get those things elsewhere. But this is why it's so important to be uh, together regularly with your church family. And actually, our goal, our goal as believers should be to always be at church on the Lord's Day. We shouldn't make it a goal to be like, well, I hope I'll be there 75% of the time, and then the other times I can be away. I mean, we understand, right? I mean, we all have vacations or there's maybe we're sick or, or certain obvious reasons why we may be absent from the Lord's people. There, there are those times. But our goal, our desire, our understanding should be that we need to be in the Lord's house. Um, we don't wake up and not eat breakfast. We don't... Um, uh, you know, it, it's amazing that we think we we need uh, the we need earthly food, but we forget that we need the spiritual food even more. And the place that we really get that is from the scriptures, and especially um, whenever the scriptures are read and preached to us. That's what God has in the Bible has promised His peculiar blessing upon hearing the preaching of the word. And so we want to come and encourage each other, but also to receive a blessing for ourselves. Okay, secondly here, J.C. Rowell says, We should mark for another thing in this verse, how kind and merciful Christ is to dull and slow believers. Nowhere, perhaps, in all the four Gospels do we find this part of our Lord's character so beautifully illustrated as in the story before our eyes. It is hard to imagine anything more tiresome and provoking than the conduct of Thomas, when even the testimony of ten faithful brethren had no effect on him, and he doggedly declared, Except I see with my own eyes and touch with my own hands, I will not believe. But it is impossible to imagine anything more patient and compassionate than our our Lord's treatment of this weak disciple. He does not reject him or dismiss him or excommunicate him, He comes again at the end of a week, and apparently for the special benefit of Thomas. He deals with him according to his weakness, like a gentle nurse dealing with a froward child. Reach here your finger, and behold my hands. Reach here your hand, and thrust it into my side. If nothing but the grossest, coarsest, most material evidence could satisfy him, even that evidence was supplied. Surely this was a love that passes knowledge and a patience that passes understanding. A passage of scripture like this, we need not doubt, was written for the special comfort of all true believers. The Holy Spirit knew well that the dull and the slow and the stupid and the doubting are by far the commonest type of disciples in this evil world. The Holy Spirit has taken care to supply abundant evidence that Jesus is rich in in patience as well as compassion and that he bears with the infirmities of all his people. Let us take care that we drink into our Lord's spirit and copy his example. Let us never set down men in a low place as gracious and godless because their faith is feeble and their love is cold. Let us remember the case of Thomas and be very compassionate and of tender mercy. 
Our Lord has many weak children in his family, many dull pupils in his school, many raw soldiers in his army, many lame sheep in his flock. Yet he bears with them all and casts none away. Happy is that Christian who has learned to deal likewise with his brethren. There are many in the church who, like Thomas, are dull and slow, but for all that, like Thomas, are real and true believers. What a wonderful reminder to us of Jesus' compassion that he doesn't just get tired of us and cast us out. And likewise, I mean, think about that. We, I can be that way, and I can be frustrated with other people, just as I'm sure there are, are believers in our church or that I've known who get frustrated with me. But we need to be compassionate to each other. Just as our Lord was compassionate to Thomas, um, we should show compassion and love and understanding and empathy and sympathy towards each other. We should uh, want to do good to one another. And we should be like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ here, who is patient and compassionate with all the sheep, even, even whenever we uh, go astray and are, and are dull like Thomas. J.C. Ryle continues here, We should mark lastly in these verses how Christ was addressed by a disciple as God without prohibition or rebuke on his part. The noble exclamation which burst from the lips of Thomas when convinced that his Lord had risen indeed, the noble exclamation, My Lord and my God, admits of only one meaning. It was a distinct testimony to our blessed Lord's divinity. It was a clear, unmistakable declaration that Thomas believed him whom he saw and touched that day, to be not only man, but God. Above all, it was a testimony which our Lord received and did not prohibit, and a declaration which he did not say one word to rebuke. When Cornelius fell down at the feet of Peter and would have worshipped him, the apostle refused such honor at once. Stand up, I myself also am a man. Acts 10 verse 26. When the people of Lystra would have done sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas, they tore their clothes and ran in among the people, saying, Sirs, why do you these things? We also are men of like passions with you. Acts 14.14 14. But when Thomas says to Jesus, My Lord and my God, the words do not elicit a syllable of reproof from our holy and truth-loving Master. Can we doubt that these things were written for our learning? Let us settle it firmly in our minds that the divinity of Christ is one of the grand foundation truths of Christianity, and let us be willing to go to the stake rather than let it go. Unless our Lord Jesus is very God, a very God, there is an end of his mediation, his atonement, his advocacy, his priesthood, his whole work of redemption. These glorious doctrines are useless blasphemies unless Christ is divine. Forever. Let us bless God that the divinity of our Lord is taught everywhere in the scriptures and stands on evidence that can never be overthrown. Above all, let us daily repose our sinful souls on Christ with undoubting confidence as one who is perfect God as well as perfect man. He is man and therefore can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He is God and therefore is able to save to the uttermost all who come unto God by him. That Christian has no cause to fear who can look to Jesus by faith and say with Thomas, My Lord and my God. With such a Savior, we need not be afraid to begin the life of real religion. And with such a Savior, we may go boldly go on. 
great reminders again. You'll notice we've always emphasized, we've tried in because the, the, the New Testament really does that, but I think it's such good stuff to remind ourselves of these very basic things that we need to know. Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus is man, Jesus is God. Um, all of these basic things about how we're saved, what we're saved, all the content that makes up Christianity, because our experience and our life in the Christian faith is built upon these doctrines, these truths, these facts that we believe are true. We believe that 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross rose again from the grave, and is seated at the right hand of God. We believe factually that he is divine, true God, and yet at the same time, true man. Those facts are the foundation of our faith and of our experience of the Christian life and of his love to us. We must never make our subjective experiences the foundation of Christianity, but it is because these things are true that therefore we build on top of that and we grow out of it and our experiences come. Okay, so Jesus comes to Thomas. And lastly here, I want to read um, some stuff about Jesus and Peter. Because Jesus, remember, um, he goes and he appears to seven disciples who are out fishing, right? And remember Peter. You can imagine how Peter must have felt that um, he's denied his Lord. He's denied him three times, just like Jesus said he would. Peter's been humbled, humiliated, embarrassed, shamed, full of guilt. And yet here in these in this, uh, verses here, beginning in verse 15, Jesus begins talking to Peter. And it says here, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. And then it continues on. Um, let's, uh, let's read these, uh, these parts here, um, that we, that we have here from JC Rowell to kind of wrap up, um, our, our understanding of the gospel of John. These verses describe a remarkable conversation between our Lord Jesus Christ and the apostle Peter. To the careful Bible reader who remembers the Apostle's thrice-repeated denial of Christ, the passage cannot fail to be a deeply interesting portion of Scripture. Well, would it be for the church if all after-meal conversations among Christians were as useful and edifying as this? Good point. We should notice first in these verses Christ's question to Peter. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Three times we find the same inquiry made. It seems most probable that this threefold repetition was meant to remind the apostle of his own thrice-repeated denial. Once we find a remarkable addition to the inquiry. Do you love me more than these? It is a reasonable supposition that those three words, more than these, were meant to remind Peter of his overconfident assertion. Though all men deny you, yet I will not. It is, as, it is just as if our Lord would say, Will you now exalt yourself above others? Have you yet learned your own weakness? Do you love me may seem at first sight a simple question. In one sense it is so. Even a child can understand love and can say whether he loves another or not. Yet, do you love me is in reality a very searching question. 
We may know much and do much and profess much and talk much and work much and give much and go through much and make much show in our religion and yet be dead before God from lack of love and at last go down to the pit. Do we love Christ? That is the great question. Without this, there is no vitality about our Christianity. We are no better than painted wax figures, lifeless stuffed beasts in a museum, sounding brass and tinkling cymbals. There is no life where there is no love. Let us take heed that there is some feeling in our religion. Knowledge, orthodoxy, correct views, regular use of forms, a respectable moral life. All these do not make up a true Christian. There must be some personal feeling towards Christ. Feeling alone, no doubt, is a, poor, is a poor useless thing and may be here today and gone tomorrow. But the entire absence of feeling is a very bad symptom and speaks ill for the state of a man's soul. The men and women to whom Paul wrote his epistles had feelings and were not ashamed of them. There was one in heaven whom they loved, and that one was Jesus, the Son of God. Let us strive to be like them and to have some real feeling in our Christianity if we hope to share their reward. We should notice secondly in these verses Peter's answer to Christ's question. Three times we find the apostle saying, You know that I love you. Once we are told that he said, you know all things. Once we have the touching remark made that he was grieved to be asked the third time. We need not doubt that our Lord, like a skillful physician, stirred up this grief intentionally. He intended to pierce the apostle's conscience and to teach him a solemn lesson. If it was grievous to the disciple to be questioned, how much more grievous must it have been to the master to be denied? The answer that the humbled apostle gave is one is the one account that the true servant of Christ in every age can give of his religion. Such an one may be weak and fearful and ignorant and unstable and failing in, in many things, but at any rate he is real and sincere. Ask him whether he is converted, whether he is a believer, whether he has grace, whether he is justified, whether he is sanctified, whether he is elect, whether he is a child of God. Ask him any of any one of these questions, and he may perhaps reply that he really does not know. But ask him whether he loves Christ, and he will reply, I do. He may add that he does not love him as much as he ought to do, but he will not say that he does not love him at all. The rule will be found true with very few exceptions. Wherever there is true grace, there will be a consciousness of love towards Christ. What, after all, is the great secret of loving Christ? It is an inward sense of having received from him pardon and forgiveness of sins. Those love much who feel much forgiven. He who has come to Christ with his sins and tasted the blessedness of free and full absolution, he is the man whose heart will be full of love towards his Savior. The more we realize that Christ has suffered for us, and paid our debt to God, and that we are washed and justified through his blood, the more we shall love him for having loved us and given himself for us. Our knowledge of doctrines may be defective, our ability to defend our views and argument may be small, but we cannot be prevented feeling, and our feeling will be like that of the Apostle Peter. You, Lord, who know all things, you know my heart, and you know that I love you. We should notice lastly in these verses, 
Christ's command to Peter. Three times we find him saying, feed my flock, once feed my lambs, and twice feed my sheep. Can we doubt for a moment that this thrice-repeated charge was full of deep meaning? It was meant to commission Peter once more to do the work of an apostle, notwithstanding his recent fall. But this was only a small part of the meaning. It was meant to teach Peter and the whole church the mighty lesson that usefulness to others is the grand test of love, and working for Christ the great proof of really loving Christ. It is not loud talk and high profession. It is not even impetuous, spasmatic zeal and readiness to draw the sword and fight. It is steady, patient, laborious effort to do good to Christ's sheep scattered throughout this sinful world, which is the best evidence of being a true-hearted disciple. This is the real secret of Christian greatness. It is written in another place, whoever wants to be a leader among you, must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must become your slave. Forever let the parting charge of our blessed Master abide in our consciences and come up in the practice of our daily lives. It is not for nothing we may be sure that we find these things recorded for our learning. Just before he left the world, let us aim at a loving, doing, useful, hardworking, unselfish, kind, unpretentious religion. Let it be our daily desire to think of others, care for others, do good to others, and to lessen the sorrow and increase the joy of this sinful world. This is to realize the great principle which our Lord's command to Peter was intended to teach. So living and so laboring to order our ways, we shall find it abundantly true that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Well, that's it. Um, I'll let you chew on that yourselves there. That's um, a great way to end our studies in the Gospels as we've been reading through the New Testament. And uh, this week you'll be wrapping up and reading the first chapter of of Acts, which we will go into next week. I really appreciate you listening to this. I hope it's been encouraging to go through the Gospels. Now we're, we're launching into a new book, the Acts is Unique, and then after that we'll be in the epistles of Paul and of the uh, other writers of the New Testament Scriptures. So thank you for listening to this, and take care, and God bless.